This podcast episode was generously funded by two anonymous donors. If you would like to support the podcast in similar ways, please contact Hadley Kelly at hkelly at pbk.org. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. I'm Fred Lawrence, Secretary and CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. On our podcast, we welcome leading thinkers, visionaries, and artists who shape our collective understanding of some of today's most pressing and consequential matters. Many of them are Phi Beta Kappa visiting scholars who travel the country for us, visiting campuses and presenting free lectures that we invite you to attend. For the full visiting scholar schedule, please visit pbk.org. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome William Bro Adams, who was senior fellow at the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Bro was the 10th chair of the National Endowment for the Humanities from 2014 to 2017 under the Obama administration. Shortly after arriving at the NEH, Bro launched an agency-wide initiative titled The Common Good, Humanities in the Public Square. The initiative sought to demonstrate the relevance of the humanities to the life of the nation during a time of unprecedented domestic and global challenges. Prior to joining the NEH, Dr. Adams served as president of Colby College in Waterville, Maine from 2000 to 2014, and also served as president of Bucknell University in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania from 1995 to 2000. Today, he lives and writes in Maine. Welcome, Professor Adams. Thank you, Fred. Good to be here. Bro, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. You have been a professor, an academic administrator, a leader in the humanities. But I want to start with a diversion in your path that's not all that common, and that is you started your career as a student, Colorado College, but interrupted that career for three years in the Army, including at least one in Vietnam at the Mekong Delta. So how did that come to be? And how do you think that influenced the whole rest of the journey? Well, it came to be because I wasn't a very good student and uh, was a little lost in college uh, during my first year in 1965-66 and um, dropped out and then realized pretty quickly that I was going to have to deal with the draft. So I enlisted as an 18-year-old ex-college student and went from there to um, basic training, to advanced training, and then I was recruited to Officers Candidate School and went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where I was commissioned as an artillery officer and spent a year in this country training and and doing other things and and then uh, went to Vietnam for a year uh, as well. As to how it affected me, it completely changed me, I think, mostly in good ways, not, not entirely in good ways, but mostly in good ways, certainly made me serious and committed when I got back to school. When I did get back to school, of course, I had a pretty different point of view on things. And I think that was the beginning of a conviction that I've had my entire professional career, that the work we do, the work you do at Phi Beta Kappa, the work I did as a professor and administrator, is extremely uh, important in the context of the daily lives we actually live. And it was then and is now my um, belief that 
um, starting with that fact and that promise is important to understanding the role of higher education, the liberal arts and sciences, and the humanities as well. Is there a greater blessing than walking to work, walking to campus, walking to the office and thinking what I'm going to do today matters? No, there probably isn't a better, a greater blessing. And I always had the conviction that it mattered. I have thoughts about where the academy should be headed and where the liberal arts and sciences should be headed in particular uh, with respect to these questions of connection of the higher education enterprise to the rest of life. But I never doubted that I was in the right place and that what I was doing was critical to the future of the students we were teaching and to the, to the broader prospects of the country as a whole. So let's take you back to Colorado College. You ultimately graduate with a BA in philosophy. Had you been a philosophy major or were you planning to major in philosophy before the time in the army or is that something that changed after you got back? Oh, I don't remember what I was thinking before the army, if, there, if I was thinking anything at all. But uh, it, I started to read philosophy actually while I was in the army and I took a night school course at the University of Louisville in Kentucky when I was stationed at Fort Knox. And that was pretty, pretty meaningful. Um, it was a course in aesthetics, actually. And there was wonder, we had a wonderful teacher um, who was on the faculty at Louisville. And I was smitten and um, never, never looked back. I was absolutely convinced that that's what I wanted to do partly because of that experience, partly because I think life in those rather extreme circumstances of the military was a learning experience that seemed deeply philosophical to me or it raised deeply philosophical questions. So I went back to Colorado College. They had a wonderful philosophy department. I'm sure they still do. And um, it was in that context that I was introduced to contemporary continental philosophy, which is what I pursued in graduate school. And I was taken away by philosophy at that, in that period. And I, I never looked back. When you say that the army experience struck you as deeply philosophical, and then that gets reinforced by the aesthetics course at Louisville, ultimately concretized when you're studying continental philosophy back at Colorado College. But say a little more about that. It's not the most obvious connection, particularly for people who haven't been in the service, as to what you mean when you say that there is a deep philosophical resonance to your army time. Well, for me, coming from a you know pretty protected environment in a middle-class community outside of Detroit, I was exposed to people and questions and behaviors that I'd never seen before and a, and a kind of diversity of background and ways of thinking about the world that were completely foreign to me. So immediately I felt kind of confronted by these new things that I was experiencing. And it, and it threw me in a, into a kind of a perpetual reflection about what was going on. I, I'm not sure I was a reflective person before that, but I certainly was was inclined in that direction because of these experiences in the army. Not everybody goes that way, by the way. I saw it in Vietnam, particularly, I saw it go quite the other way, where people kind of shut down 
intellectually, the experiences were complicated and difficult and um, dangerous and uh, made people go the other way, you know, kind of close, close themselves off, partly protectively, partly, I think, um, to escape the, the things that were going on around them and us. But for me, it was really a, an impulse to reflection. And I think, you know, pretty deep questions about, about why people act the way they do and how wars are possible and what people do in wars and um, all of the things that I saw, which again, were quite new and quite overwhelming. You wonder if in fact the reaction to extreme circumstances such as that and particularly your time in Vietnam, is in fact bimodal, not a normal distribution, but bimodal. One either shuts down or one becomes deeply reflective, but there's not much middle ground. You know, that's very interesting. I never thought about it that way. I, I think you're probably right. I think it probably is bimodal. Um, as I think back upon the people I was serving with and the people I knew there, um, my closest friend there um, after, the, after the war became a writer and a teacher. And so he too went through this, you know, in his own way, this kind of reflective career following, following the service. But many people I'm sure went quite the other way. So I think that's a very, a very wise uh, comment and does reflect, as I think back on it, a lot of what I saw. Two of your early teaching posts are at very different institutions, a private Jesuit school, Santa Clara, and a big celebrated public, uh, Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Were you influenced by differences between those settings? Did you see similarities? Uh, how, how did you experience the juxtaposition of uh, Santa Clara on the one hand, Chapel Hill on the other? I found them both to be pretty interesting places, but as you say, extraordinarily different. I mean, Chapel Hill, this big burly public university, mostly mostly students from North Carolina, met some wonderful students from North Carolina who had grown up in you know far flung places of the state and had done well in high school, and they're now at this you know really outstanding place. Even then, the state of North Carolina was in a kind of an oppositional place and way with respect to uh, the university and the resources of the university. So it always felt a little starved for resources, but the faculty, the faculty was tremendous. The students were very good. It attracted a lot of students, though there were limits on this, from out of state who wanted a part of that scene in Chapel Hill. Much more common today, but but still even then. Right? Yeah, even then there was a there was a percentage, I don't remember what it was, probably ten percent came from out of state paying a much higher tuition. So I had that big public university experience. Santa Clara by contrast was a small Jesuit institution, drew mostly from the Bay Area. Um, also very interesting and I had some interesting colleagues there you know, quite a little more buttoned up intellectually. But, you know, it introduced me to the Jesuit way of thinking about higher education. And I have to say that, you know, I've been an admirer of some of the dimensions of Jesuit thinking about higher ed and admire the kind of people that have come out of that system, including Anthony Fauci, you know, 
coming out of Holy Cross. Holy Cross. Cross. And, and, and actually of, before, right? He comes from a Jesuit high that's school. Right, that's right. Jesuit university. That's, that's right. I have a lot of, of warm thoughts about the way Jesuits think about the purpose of education, you know, the, the growth of the person as a member of a society in which he or she should be uh, serving the public good and the public interest. I think that's a dimension of higher education that we have almost lost entirely in the United States. And the Jesuits cling to it, which I think is terrific and um, good for them. I know there are other dimensions of the Jesuit approach that maybe aren't so progressive, but in any case, it was, it was an interesting experience. Yeah. So let's let's take you to your to your presidencies. You spent a substantial time portion of your career as a college president. First five years at Bucknell in Pennsylvania in the mid late nineteen nineties, uh, and then into two thousands, where you spent fourteen fifteen years in at Colby College in Waterville, Maine. We we overlapped during that time. I wasn't all that far away when right. I, I was president of Brandeis at that yeah. time and walked them. When you look back on those times. And in some ways, it's a long time ago, but in some ways, not so terribly long. Uh, what, what do you think of as the, as the major challenges that you faced? And what do you think of as the, as the major successes? Well, I think when I went to Bucknell uh, in 1995, we were just starting to see the, let's say something like the deterioration of the public standing of private and public universities and higher education generally in the country. There was, a, there was a mounting sort of public skepticism about what we were doing. That certainly hasn't changed or gotten any better. I, I think it's gotten, gotten worse. But it was beginning. Uh, the cost issues were becoming uh, very sensitive and difficult. And you could feel the acceleration, as I'm sure you did at Brandeis, of at the same time, of the competitive marketplace surrounding and context of higher education, with all of the effects that that had and has on, on what we do or what we did and what they're still doing. And I think most of those competitive market-based effects were not good. I think they um, changed the attitude of administrations and boards of trustees, especially to some degree faculty, though I think faculty resisted some of that pressure in, in a good way. But that whole market-driven phenomenon of U.S. news rankings, who's better than whom, that all was sort of gaining momentum. And that phenomenon and that dynamic continues to dominate higher education in ways I think that are very problematic. The price issue, of course, is as lively or livelier than ever, and all of the questions about sort of the mission of higher education and how it serves the public have only gotten, I think, more, more um, difficult. And the critics have gotten uh, quite a bit louder. Meanwhile, of course, the scramble to get into college in that competitive admissions phenomenon has grown at the same time Ironically, uh, but that's part of the part of the fundamental dynamic, I think, in higher education. And that was also the period in which, uh, going back to my experience at, at North Carolina, where public, where states 
we're becoming very, very stingy with respect to the budgets. And that was the beginning of this long process of the defunding of public higher education by states and state budgets. What's getting set aside um, is this big question about what are, the, what are the fundamental dimensions of the educational experience and what kind of people are we imagining come out of this experience? And we don't think very much about what I like to call meaning readiness, which is the way in which we all sort of travel through the world in our experiences in search of or making meaning uh, in various aspects of our lives. The, uh, at Phi Beta Kappa, we, the vocabulary we've been using is that a liberal arts education prepares you for a meaningful life, a productive life, and an engaged life as a citizen. But here's the, here's the trick, I think, and I wonder your thoughts on this. The meaningful life, what we think of as the essence of understanding who we are, where the world has come from, who's asked the questions we're asking, how do we fit in the world, how do we understand the world, the meaningful life is not so brittle or fragile that if we lay it alongside of the productive life, it's going to disappear. We can talk about both of those things, and a first-rate education certainly ought to talk about both of those things, as well as the participation readiness or what we call the engaged life of citizens. So is that along the lines of where you're, where you're probing for? Sure. And of course, they're, they're, they're closely connected. I mean, if you think about working lives and, the, and what all of us do in our working lives, one of the, one of the things that people confront sort of in the most um, predictable and extensive ways is what is the meaning of my work? Is it meaningful? What does it mean? What do I get from it? What kind of person uh, does it require me to be? I mean, these questions are not abstract. You know, I think it's kind of surprising, for example, that in liberal arts colleges and universities, with which I'm most familiar, we didn't, we didn't teach about work very much. I mean, there are lots of economic courses. There are lots of, of uh, now there are you know, lots of courses in finance and, you know, those kinds of quasi-professional sorts of fields. But I don't recall a single course in my entire career that was focused on the meaning of work. I remember reading, you know, Marx on alienation, <laughs> you know, and Durkheim on anomic relationships and Weber, but, you know, the, the, these weren't sort of work-focused conversations. So I think there's tremendously interesting terrain for philosophers, historians, humanists of all kinds, social scientists, certainly, to engage these, these work-related questions as existential sort of phenomena, right? The, the, the actual lives that people uh, right. lead. But, so but I, as I, you say... But not in the abstract. These, these are actual real life questions. These are the students who will come talk to me in office hours about all sorts of questions about legal doctrine that we're studying. And clearly, at some point, the question goes to, do I really want to be a lawyer when I grow up? Right. That's what's really animating this. And what can I do with this? And in my experience, I'm sure yours, too, a lot of 
meetings with alumni who were three years out and 30 years out or 50 years out turned in part on these kinds of questions, not just what did I do over the past half century with my uh, Brandeis diploma or with my Colby diploma, uh, but who was I? What did I become? Exactly. And that's where the, you know, this meaning readiness and this work readiness uh, sort of concepts and domains intersect almost almost completely. But in general, I would say, as faculty, we've got to be, I speak kind of the royal we here, we've got to be much more interested in this question of work readiness. And I'd be careful to say, not in the sense of training, because we, we don't do that very well. And lots of other people do that much better than, than we do, we being liberal arts and colleges. But in giving students kind of fundamental pieces of orientation and context for the working lives that they will ultimately have, they're thinking about it, of course, in their own ways. And we should be willing and eager to help them think about it because, it, by the way, it's intellectually extraordinarily interesting and challenging. And I think this applies to not just these questions about how is my identity related to my work? I think it's also related to things like dimensions of work that they're actually going to encounter in the organizations and places in which they work. In addition to running two relatively small private schools, you also got to paint on a very, very large campus, uh, ca canvas, one might say the largest canvas there is, the whole society, uh, when President Obama appointed you as the 10th chair of the National Endowment for the Humanities in uh, 2014. Tell us a little bit about the common good humanities in the public square. What were you trying to accomplish there? And maybe even a couple of examples of when, it, when you got it just right. I was coming into in NEH in 2014, and you know the humanities were already in a kind of a free fall at that point. My conviction was that NEH had to be a kind of thought leader with respect to whither the humanities. You know, where are we? Where are we going? It's not just a question of what the humanities are doing in the university or college world, but what they're doing out there in the larger world. And what I found was, and I'm sure you're aware of this being where you are now, the humanities go way out beyond the college and university world, and they're embedded in all of these cultural institutions. So I was interested in two key questions. One, how do we help colleges and universities think about the transformation of the humanities within their own settings to address this crisis that they found and find themselves in? And how do we think and talk about and make a difference in the public humanities with respect to the way the humanities intersect with the broad general public. So we thought a lot about and talked a lot about how we, how we use the government's money, taxpayers' money, to advance both of these interests. And the common good was really a creature of that thought process. And so we tried to pick these sectors of public life and the humanities, where we thought there was a lot of good work that could be done that would demonstrate the relevance of the humanities to the common good. One of the interesting expressions of this was a part of this initiative was called Humanities in the Public Square. And these were 
invitations for funding in projects that were local expressions of humanistic work in communities. And there were just dozens and dozens of, of wonderful projects. There was a very memorable one in, in Miami. And it was um, a project that had to do with environmental change and justice in the, in the Miami area caused by global warming. This is back in 2015, right, before a lot of the hurricanes and the flooding had occurred. But it struck me at the time as a, as a pretty interesting project. And, of course, now it looks like it was sort of prophetic in, in, in its inspiration. We also did a lot of work with veterans around uh, the legacy of war and with communities around the legacies of war. Of course, we were in two of them at the time. And so we did a lot of really interesting work with veterans, which were um, very moving and very, of course, interesting to me personally. Ro Adams, what a pleasure to have you sit down with us today on Key Conversations. Thanks for being with us. It's been a pleasure being here, Fred. Thank you for the invitation. This podcast is produced by LWC. Jimmy Gutierrez is managing editor. Kojin Tashiro mixed this episode. And Hadley Kelly is the Phi Beta Kappa producer on the show. Our theme song is Back to Back by Jan Perchik. Our guest today, Bro Adams, was selected to deliver the Malcolm Lester Phi Beta Kappa lectures hosted by Mercer University. In those lectures, he discusses the importance of liberal arts and sciences in a post-pandemic world. You can read them in their entirety at pbk.mercer.edu. We'll include a link to the lectures on our page as well, pbk.org slash key conversations. You can learn more about the work of the Phi Beta Kappa Society and our Visiting Scholar Program on that site as well. Thanks for listening. I'm Fred Lawrence. Until next time.